24 and from Acts 1. And if you'd like, you can follow along in your service sheet. Let's read. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And from Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Well, it could be a pretty short sermon, actually, because, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it didn't appear to me that uh, the Ascension has much significance in the uh, New Testament. Uh, The two Bible readings we just had, just had seven verses uh, which narrated the Ascension, and there are almost 8,000 verses in the New Testament, so that's not exactly a big focus, is it? 
And when it comes to explaining the gospel, I think most of us would probably have heard the gospel explained as the death, resurrection and maybe the return of Christ. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard a gospel presentation which included the ascension. It's true, the ascension is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed and uh, it's on the screen for you there. You can see on the third day Jesus rose again. He ascended into heaven, just four words, seated at the right hand of the Father, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Uh, The important events in the creed, it seems, are the death, the resurrection and the last judgment. And I love the line, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. It's as if the ascension is just about removing Jesus so that he can come back again at some point. So friends, I ask, is the ascension of Jesus a MacGuffin in the Easter story, a mere plot token? Now that's not a typo. Uh, A MacGuffin is a literary device, had to look it up, which basically uh, moves the plot forward without having much significance of itself. If you're watching a movie, it might be a a car ride uh, or someone going to sleep. Uh, Apparently, Alfred Hitchcock is credited with popularising the term, although popularising might be a slight exaggeration. And um, I'm wondering if, uh, if you'd like to tell me later, I'm happy to buy anyone a coffee who had heard of the term MacGuffin. Uh, as, a, as we saw on the screen, it's, uh, as we can still see, it's, an, it's been unflatteringly called a plot coupon. It's of some limited value, but its function is simply to move the story along. Uh, Its interest is quickly exhausted and something else takes over in the plot. So if the ascension is a MacGuffin, it serves to remove Jesus so that he can return, or in literary terms, it kind of moves us from Luke to Acts, because the ascension's sort of the hinge between those two volumes, as we just heard. Speaking of Easter, how good was the St Jude's Easter art show? Uh, It's kind of disappointing to come today and not see the art show in the foyer. Uh, That first night was so uh, moving, wasn't it? With so many insightful and uh, engaging works. I'm a bit of a philistine when it comes to art. But uh, uh, this one really took me in and I love this four-panel piece by Rachel Sarkis. Uh, It was entitled, Jesus, Humble, Sacrificial, Triumphant, Glorified. And you can probably guess the four panels in order cover the triumphal entry, uh, which I think Matt preached on actually, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ and then the ascent of Christ into heaven. So what's interesting is that Rachel chose four panels and not three for the Easter story. A quadriptych, I had to look that up as well, rather than a triptych. Uh, So was Rachel mistaken in giving the Ascension such a focus? Uh, It it, it could almost be a joke, couldn't it? The the artist, the puppet and the principal walked into a bar and was asked about the significance of the Ascension. Well, as it turns out, thankfully, I've done some homework and I'm with Rachel and I'm glad she chose all four scenes. So in spite of first appearances, the New Testament actually does make a lot of the ascension and it's an essential element in the work of Christ, as I hope we'll see in a few moments. 
The ascensions referred to in many places apart from that narrative we just heard from the end of, Act, uh, end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. In fact, all five of the first Christian sermons in Acts by the Apostle Peter mention or allude to the ascension. John's Gospel speaks six times of Jesus going to the Father and four times of him ascending to the Father, using that verb to ascend. Uh, Paul in Colossians 3 tells us to think of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. And in 1 Timothy 3.16, you have a kind of mini creed which Paul gives us. He says it's the mystery from which true godliness springs and uh, he puts in there Jesus being taken up into glory. And then the book of Hebrews, if you've ever read it, has... uh, Um, So much to say about the ascension and its whole argument depends on Jesus ascending. So rather than a MacGuffin, a plot token, uh, I put to you that the ascension of Jesus is a Cinderella doctrine, if you like. It's been sitting in the ashes, it's uh, been neglected and its true resplendent beauty has not been seen. It deserves to be lifted back to a place of honour whereby we can see it for all it is. Or to put it more positively, I think there's great encouragement in the fact of the ascension for learning who Jesus is, what he's done for us and what he's doing. Rightly understood, the ascension reveals Jesus' true identity and what he's doing between his first and second comings. And it's critical for our forgiveness and blessing from God. So we could look at a whole bunch of texts to learn about the ascension in the New Testament. What I propose to do is just look at the last four verses of Luke and uh, occasionally we'll look at Hebrews and the Old Testament also will play uh, a bit of a part. So the last four verses of Luke, Luke 24, 50 to 53, actually tell us a great deal about the significance of the ascension. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So what we need to note here, friends, is what does Jesus do at the ascension And how do the disciples respond to Jesus ascending? So what we learn about about Jesus' ascension from these uh, these four verses gives us some sense of its meaning and significance and there are several clues or hints in here and we'll come back to it uh, as we proceed. The things I want us to note are the idea that Jesus blessed his disciples as he was ascending the fact that he was worshipped by his disciples at his ascension and the fact that he, it brought great joy to the disciples to see him departing. Two things stand out. Rightly understood, these verses teach us that the ascension is about Jesus' installation as king and as priest, just as our, our puppet learned earlier, in fact, So in our passage, as king, his disciples worship him and as priest, he blesses them, says it twice in that passage. And that the ascension achieves these things is made explicit in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 where it says, 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest, here it is, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, and I've put in brackets that not, that's not in the translation, the King, principles are allowed to do that. So Son of God actually underscores, as we all know, uh, Jesus' relation to God, but it's, it's also a, a Davidic King title. It designates Jesus as the King. So let's think about Jesus the ascended king and the ascended priest, one by one. From the ascension we see Jesus, our ascended king. Reading about the ascension in the New Testament is kind of like reading volume four of the Harry Potter series. You've got a few volumes to come you're looking forward to. Um, uh, But really to make sense of volume four, you've got to understand the backstory, as it's called, the first three volumes of Harry Potter. And I think to understand the ascension, you, you need the Old Testament. The Old Testament supplies the backstory. So what were priests and kings like in the Old Testament? And there's actually some prophecies of Jesus ascending as our priest and king. To start with, with kings, in the Old Testament, kings ascended. Uh, not to heaven, but up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So we can see this in Psalm 2 which is kind of a coronation psalm. So when new kings were crowned in Israel, they would uh, say this psalm. And uh, we read here that God has installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So you you can see there the the notion of a king ascending. In verse 6 it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then the king as God's son is made clear in the next couple of verses. See that? I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And then the type of kingship which was expected in Israel comes through in the next verse. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So the king ascends and the king is God's son. The promise here, of course, of a universal reign of God's appointed king, uh, making all the earth subject to him, uh, is a kind of lofty expectation that was never achieved by the kings in Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. There were some high points among the kings. So you had uh, David, Solomon for a while, Hezekiah, Josiah... But overall, these golden ages in the kingdoms of Israel were pretty short-lived and uh, the kings, most of the kings, all of the kings in the northern kingdom were unrighteous and all of them fall short of the promise here in verse 8 with its talk of the kingdom extending to the ends of the earth. So the apostles in the New Testament see this text as prophesying of Jesus fulfilling this promise of ascending to the throne as God's son. The unique son of God fulfills the psalm in his resurrection and ascent. He's installed, if you like, as God's king over all the earth. Another Old Testament text makes clear that the king will ascend and rule from heaven. In Daniel 7, the king is called the son of man. And of course, as you'll know, Jesus in the Gospels, his favourite self-designation, how he likes to refer to himself in the third person, is the Son of Man. Daniel says, In my vision I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And the clouds were mentioned in Acts 1. 
you'll remember. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. There's the worship notion. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. An extraordinary prophecy of the Lord Jesus which he fulfills through his resurrection and ascension. Jesus, the Son of Man, is our ascended King forever. So the ascent is the climax of Jesus' teaching about the Kingdom of God because his main topic, the thing he talked about most in his earthly ministry, was this Kingdom of God. And it was all pointing towards the day in which his Kingdom would be inaugurated, uh, which was at the ascension. In a few weeks' time, we've got an election coming up and later in the year, we've got a state election as well. So I think I'm fairly safe about offending everyone. So when we think about the ideal ruler, they always fall short, don't they? And our day is a day of disillusionment with our political leaders for one reason or another. We want leaders who will be characterised by justice and righteousness by bringing peace and love, by truth and mercy. All of those things are the kind of things that would motivate us to vote one way or another. But with elections around the corner, we, we do well to remember that there is only one perfect ruler and he will reign forever and ever. And his kingdom is and will be, when it's fully in place, characterised by justice and righteousness peace and love, truth and mercy. Now Jesus is the promised Davidic king but there's a bit of a twist really because he's not just a human appointed by God, he's the unique son of God, God himself worthy of our worship and we saw that in Luke 24 where the disciples worship him and then at the end of Luke they praise God. Quite a confusing moment really, isn't it? Because don't forget that only God receives worship in the Bible. In Revelation 22, the Apostle John meets an angel and uh, understandably, I think, falls down before the angel and begins to worship him. And the angel replies, I love this, don't do that, I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Yet the disciples worship Jesus at his ascension. Uh, we sang, crown him with many crowns and it's right that we worship the Lord Jesus, the lamb upon the throne. And the line in there that uh, struck me as we sang mentions the ascension. Uh, he died and rose on high, not just from the dead, but he ascended. Uh, sometimes uh, we ask students at college, what's Jesus doing between the first and second comings and uh, perhaps a little bit uh, um, cheekily students will reply he's sitting yep and and that actually is exactly right in Luke 22:68, it says from now on the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God and the apostles creed actually follows the ascension with this very idea so is Jesus just having a well-earned rest um, kind of having a pause, a break. I think the thing to note here is that his sitting implies not rest and passivity but his ongoing sovereign rule. 
because uh, uh, throughout history, sovereign rulers, kings and queens, would rule from a seated position. Jesus has entered his rule, appointed by God at his ascension. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. So at his ascension, Jesus enters his rule, having conquered sin and death and the spiritual forces of darkness. And the ascension proclaims his kingship as king over all the earth forever. But there's more in the ascension. We also see that from the ascension that Jesus is our ascended priest. And uh, it won't surprise you, uh, you can see where we're heading. Not only did kings ascend in the Old Testament, but priests ascended too. Uh, In Exodus, Moses goes up on the mountain and intercedes for God's people, acting in a kind of priestly fashion. The high priest on the Day of the Atonement is said to ascend into the Holy of Holies. David in Psalm 24 puts it this way, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? So it was a very priestly thing to do, to ascend. And I think there's a clue in Luke 24 that the ascended Jesus is our priest because if you look at uh, the passage again on the uh, handout, uh, he blesses his disciples. And blessing the worshippers was one of the key functions of a priest in the Old Testament. Priests did four things basically. They provided worshippers with forgiveness, access to God, intercession and blessing. And uh, Jesus, our ascended priest, certainly secures our forgiveness from God. He presents his blood, we're told, having made a sacrifice. In Hebrews 8, it puts it this way, we have a high priest who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Uh, We sang earlier, before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. The reason we do is because Jesus, our ascended priest, is there pleading for us. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. I think in our day we're less likely to despair of our guilt. Uh, But the holiness of God really is one of the mainstays of the Bible's revelation about our God. And if you're old enough, you'll know that every one of us has deep regrets and in our darker moments we might wonder about our standing before God in the light of how we've lived. And uh, this, the ascension assures us as the song goes on that we can look upward and see him there who made an end to all our sin. The work of Christ securing our forgiveness requires both his sacrifice, making atonement for our sin, and his priesthood, offering that sacrifice in the heavenly temple. All gifts, in fact, require two steps. So on Easter Friday, Nat, Toby and I, after the service, flew to Sydney to surprise Nat's sister for her 50th birthday. Uh, We'd prepared a gift. We went to uh, an important aspect of Melbourne culture, namely chocolate. And uh, we went to Chocolatel in Canterbury. I don't know if any of you know it on Mailing Road. Actually, chocolate is a big part of my experience of Melbourne. Ten years ago, I was... uh, 
um, just over 10 years, I was interviewed and afterwards Kirsty Brown took me to uh, Coco Black here in Carlton. So it's one of the things that Melbourne has over Sydney, and I'd only say that here, um, the, the chocolate. So we bought this beautiful little basket of chocolate eggs uh, from Chocolatel. That's the first step in offering a gift. The second step is delivering the gift. Now there was a problem because uh, we're only going for 24 hours for this surprise visit and it wouldn't fit in the carry-on luggage. So it's still at home on top of our chest of drawers and occasionally there's a debate about what we might do with it. <laughs> so there are two steps to any gift and the gift of our forgiveness is no different. The cross pays for the gift of our redemption and the ascension delivers that gift. And without the ascension and the high priestly work of the Lord Jesus, we do not receive the forgiveness and the redemption that is our gift from God. So there's a dual work which means that Jesus, our ascended priest, guarantees our access to God. A passage in Hebrews 4 makes this point. Jesus, our perfect and ascended priest, uh, despite our weak and imperfect lives, can come to God in prayer, we can come to God in prayer with full assurance. Hebrews 4 puts it well. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, there it is, who was ascended into heaven, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne, access into his presence, of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So we approach God not in self-reliance, but confident that because of Jesus, our ascended priest, we will find mercy and grace before God. Forgiveness, access, intercession, and then finally, blessing. The ultimate goal of all of the first three priestly acts is to bless us. Now in our day, blessing is, uh, it's kind of been devalued as a term really. Uh, you might hear someone say, such a blessing, I got a good parking spot coming to church this morning. Uh, a nice holiday, a promotion, some purchase. It can be controversial too as the Prime Minister found out this week uh, using the term blessing. So what actually is blessing? Blessing can be certain things from God, but the ultimate blessing is actually God himself, having God, belonging to God, being a child of God. In the famous Old Testament blessing of Aaron, which many of you might know from number six, it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. And listen to what the blessing is. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to, to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So peace is a blessing there, but the main point is that we look to God as our blessing. The blessing of God's care and concern for our everyday lives, of peace in our lives, flows from the blessing of God's face shining upon us and putting us right with God. Likewise, in the New Testament, those who belong to God, who are part of his kingdom, who keep his words, whose sins are forgiven, who are invited to the wedding feast, they're the ones, it said, are blessed. And it's Jesus through his life, death, resurrection and ascension 
that enables us to enjoy that blessing from God. So far from a non-event, a mere hinge in the narratives of Luke's two-volume work, a MacGuffin, a mere plot token, the ascension enthrones Jesus as forever king and installs him as our great high priest. At the end of Luke, Jesus is worshipped and blesses his disciples. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them as the great high priest. When he was offering this priestly blessing, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him as God himself, as the forever king, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Now the really surprising thing about that passage is certainly that Jesus is worshipped, but also the great joy. Thinking back to our trip to Sydney on uh, Good Friday, returning on Saturday night, getting home after one in the morning. Uh, it, it, there's one thing about our trips to Sydney to see Nat's sister. We, we have a holiday with them most years in the summer and we greet them with great joy, but we don't leave them with great joy. In fact, Nat reliably will cry every time we leave her sister. So, so how is it then that the disciples greet the departure of Jesus with great joy. The key is seeing the ascension of Jesus for what it really is. The ascension is a moment of great joy for the disciples and for us when we realise that it is the moment when, when Jesus Christ is crowned as King forever and installed as our great High Priest. Rachel was right to produce a quadriptych and to include the ascension as the fourth panel. There is really great joy, friends, in the ascension of Jesus. It reminds us that whatever happens in our world, whatever happens in our lives, Jesus still reigns as king forever. We wait for the full reality of that reign, but he still reigns in the meantime. The ascension also reassures us that the mercy and grace of God covers our messy, imperfect and unholy lives. Praise God.